today, let's uh, talk about sales. Let's talk about your view of the word sales, maybe your background if you've done any sales, and then we'll jump into maybe some direct experiences we've seen in companies uh, as they've built a sales and marketing team or needed to build a sales and marketing team. So Justin, you want to start us out? Didn't we record this already? Yeah, but we only recorded like 10 that's minutes. In, that's canceled. in the trash can. Oh, we tried. Oh, that's yeah. right. Because <laughs> yeah. we had the issues. Okay. Yeah. Got to repeat yourself. We're not perfect. Re- I don't even remember what I said, so it'll be, it'll be fresh. Yeah. I feel like yeah. I've got my uh, Keith Sweat voice today because I'm still getting over a cold. So <laughs> yeah, um, that's going to get us lots of listeners. Probably if I talk down low. <laughs> Do that the whole time. <laughs> but, so my experience your, with your sales, sales voice. it's my sales voice. Um, no, I have no, um, I have no direct experience in sales. Um, I've never had, meaning I've never had a, you know, a, a proper sales, you know, job. I've never held a sales position. Um, I've always been pretty decent at selling stuff, you know, getting rid of things that I don't need anymore. Like if it's upgrading to the latest phone, I, I never have an issue of selling like the old one, those types of things. Um, but, but never, never been in a feast so or famine situation. Tele- telemarketing sales? Well. I guess that's fair. I guess I did do telemarketing now that you remind me of that. And I guess that is sales. But that was a thing where I guess I'm thinking of sales like a proper sales position being where it's feast or famine, like you have to sell to earn your salary. And when you're in telemarketing, right. you basically you're, you know, you get an hourly rate and you just get a call list and you go through it. Right. So there's that's less pressure. There was no pressure to really actually sell anything. Like if you didn't sell anything all day, it wasn't like I wasn't going to get paid. Um, so right. I, I would say that 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 added pressure. Of a, of a typical sales, like an account executive or something, wasn't there. Um, but I think it definitely um, was in the same vein for sure. Um, and one of the things you know that was interesting about the job is just everybody, not everybody, but a good chunk of people on the other end of the line would just get completely irate um, for calling to sell a credit card. I was selling um, American Express, the blue card, and then I was upselling the other cards that they had at the time. And... Uh, <laughs> It was funny. I, I actually enjoyed it. A lot of people that I worked with couldn't couldn't stomach the the disappointment on the other end. Um, but I thought it was I thought it was entertaining and funny. It was it was so long ago. We had um we had the tape decks that you had to push record if you got a sale. So as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you got somebody to say yes, you had to hit the record button on there and then make sure it was the whole call was recorded. And there was a little segment at the end that you had to say every single time, and you had to get it to completion. If the person hung up the phone, you didn't get the sale. And they wouldn't get their card and vice versa. If you didn't, let's say the call recorder didn't work properly, you wouldn't get it either. So you'd have to, they would get, they would get popped back in the list and you had to like effectively call them again. Um, so, but, but yeah, so so, go ahead. So when I say salesperson, like when I say salesperson or sales position or whatever, what's your initial immediate thought? Um, I mean, I, I guess I think of somebody who's, you know, scrappy and is, I don't know, just somebody who's, I think of a traditional sales role is what I think of, I guess. I don't think of, of customer service or, or um, any other type of position when, when I first think of it, even though I know that every position in the organization effectively is selling. At least that's the thing they teach you when you get into consulting is no matter what position you feel, you're effectively selling. If I'm you know, at a client site and I'm delivering for them, how well you know, I carry myself and how good I deliver impact sales in that, in that organization. Um, so, right. You know, and but, in your last position, you were specifically asked, um, if you wanted to join the true sales and marketing team and you didn't want to, what was it about switching to that type of role that wasn't attractive to you? Um, I just, I don't find it fun. Um, I guess it's a, I see it as more of a, a necessary evil, (laughs) but there's something about sales and I think it's a stigma that it seems somewhat slimy, um, and that you're always kind of having to, um, I don't know, always have to be on, you know, it's almost, almost Mm -hmm. like you can't be authentic in that position. You have to be on at every moment, no matter how you're feeling in order to, get the sale because the sale is the ultimate objective. And I think that's just not the way life works. And I don't think everybody's always in that bubbly on mode. And, sure. and, 
and for me, I just I didn't gravitate towards that as something I wanted to do from a career standpoint. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not I guess hesitant from the risk side of it, you know, the feast or famine side. Like you know, if I don't sell, I don't really get paid. That part doesn't worry me. Um, but it was just more around the the day to day of what I perceive sales to be. And since I've never had a job, I'm t- to be fair, I'm totally just going off of intuition and just exposure to other people that have been in the positions, but, but you saw me doing sales for years and I'm never bubbly. I know. I don't know how you did it. (laughs) There's another type of selling. It's called arguing and challenging. (laughs) Well, I'd be good at that. Yeah. All right, John, what about, what about your background or your thoughts when you hear sales position, sales team? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, coming up on the, um, I'm just the finance guy by nature. So, um, you know, when I was coming up through high school and college, you had buddies selling Cutco knives. That was big in our generation and people getting on that. And I never got on that. I was mortified by the idea of my friends that did it. It was great for them to do it. I knew they were going to fail at it and they all did. <laughs> um, and they learned, they, they failed financially, but they learned probably. Yeah. Yeah. They learned something. Um, and uh, so I remember the Cutco thing and all that stuff. And then and then basically, if you couldn't really get a job out of college or figure out what you want to do, you would sell insurance. So that was another classic sales path. So sales for me at the beginning was kind of a bottom feeding. Oh, shit, I didn't get a real degree. I didn't get a real job. Um, sales is where you land. And so so there was that kind of starting thing. And then from a from a risk perspective, um, I just have like just well, not like Justin, but similar to what he meant. Um, just the idea of oh man, I just can't imagine living life that your paycheck is coming from your next sale. What's around the corner and all that stuff. So so that was always a tricky thing for me to um, work through from the earliest stage. And yet, just the the pressure of getting someone to buy something was just more than I could could bear. And um, and then I think that that culminated when I went into public accounting and uh, just knowing that the arc of the career arc of public accounting is you end up being a partner in public accounting. You know, if you do well there and stuff like that. And just from day one, I just had this mindset of I could never sell. I don't want to be a partner. I don't want to be in the position of selling work. And um, and so don't want to be a partner. And therefore, I'm going to kind of do this for a couple of years until you hit the selling point. And then I'll exit and go into industry was kind of my my plan with all that. So, so a lot of that changed over time, but that was kind of my formative years and how I, how I thought about, how I thought about sales, you know, at those points in my life. Sure. Okay. Well, well let, let, go ahead. Justin. I was just gonna say, what about you? Like uh, you, you never had a, 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 I mean, I think other than Defy, proper you've never had a role. proper, a, I like that word. Is that, do you, proper do you guys sales. not say that? I say proper a lot. Like no, it's not a proper, literally a lot, even though it's not literal, whatever I'm saying. Well, what about you? Uh, okay, I'll give a little, I'll give kind of the same background and then um, would be interested in hearing about the companies you guys worked for and and in your careers and what you saw through the process. But I would say that prior to the last job, if anybody would have asked me um, if I like sales, if I am good at sales, anything else, I, I would have said absolutely not. And I would have said absolutely not not necessarily. So probably in between where Justin doesn't fear at all the, the paycheck part of it. And John completely fears it. I'm probably in the middle. It's not the reason I wouldn't have considered myself a salesperson or wouldn't want to do it, but it's not, it wouldn't have been attractive to me either because I, I like full transparency and I wouldn't want the ability to feed my family to be based on having to push something to somebody that they didn't want it. So I definitely had some of that perception Though I saw, I had an uncle who was a great salesperson. I saw people around me who were great salespeople. So I always respected it. And I thought it was an amazing skill set. I just 100% thought I, I don't have it. I'm just, um, I'm just a process person, a numbers person, so forth and so on. And then, but when I stop and I think back, you know, all the way through initial things that I was doing, it's funny because now I can see that I was always selling. So not in proper sales position, like Justin said, but, um, 
but yeah, I was, I, I grew up watching my mom sell inside her, inside their electronic store. My dad did the service and my mom did the sales. And I think that that was kind of part of the stigma that I didn't want to be a salesperson because like John said, I had to, my mom was always on or Justin said, my mom always had to be on. She was always smiling and always being nice. And I remember her even saying a few times that her, her face hurt so bad from smiling all the time. And that's completely opposite of me. I don't smile. I am not bubbly. And so, so certainly I had a stigma associated with it. And then my uncle was very outgoing and so forth, but at a very, you know, age eight and on, I would, we had something called hog wild days once a year and I would set up a lemonade stand and I would sell. And so I certainly wasn't shy enough that, that I wouldn't do something like that. Like I, I was out there asking people to buy lemonade, setting up the stand. Uh, I did the typical Girl Scout thing and my mom was very set that I had to sell the cookies. She wasn't going to. And so she forced me to to learn basic skills of looking people in the eye, asking them the question, repeating it back, thanking them. Um, and so I've done the same thing with my kids and, and anybody who calls me to buy anything, I'll, I'll say, I'm not buying from you. I'll buy from your kids because I think it's just a critical mm -hmm. thing to be able to learn to, to. How did the, um, Hey Steph, how, how did the fundraiser thing go for you? Were you one of the kids who wanted to sell the thousand boxes and beat everyone or do your very best? Or did you like it? Did you not like it? What was your just attitude towards the fundraising? Sales. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, and maybe my parents would say differently, but no, I think I always wanted to be the best at everything and especially something like that, that I was capable of doing. So, um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't do that. Just come home and ask my parents to write something down. I, I was full on into it and asking people and getting pledges and so forth. So that's why I say, when I look back on it, I clearly was comfortable or my mom made me comfortable or whatever it was. And then, and then, you know, fast forward and I was, and I was always selling something, Hey, all you friends, let's start a club and here's what the club will be. And, you know, and trying to convince and sell them about why this was a good idea. Or I think about my twenties when pampered chef and all these things were around and I never wanted to do it as a, um, you know, as a full-time thing. But when I found something that I loved, when I found something that I just really loved, you, you couldn't keep me from telling people about it. So, so I absolutely would sell things I believed in or tell people about things I believed in, but that's because I believed I was helping people. Like when I, yeah. when I get something I like, hear about something I like, uh, I'll tell everybody uh, because I think it will make their lives better. So, so while I think John, if you get something you really like, you might tell two, two of your friends or four of your friends, but you're certainly not going to go outside that scope where I, I would happily tell everybody I had a conversation with, um, and not feel weird about it or anything else. Again, my paycheck isn't dependent on that. I don't feel like I'm, um, benefiting, you know, from it necessarily. And then, and then I think about my first job that I had for 10 years and I was constantly internally selling for new departments, new ways of doing mm -hmm. things. And so again, it was more of a challenger sell. It was like, this process doesn't work. Let's do this. This doesn't work. Let's do this. But you had to get people to buy in. So I, I feel like I was, you know, always doing it. And then, but I, I certainly never thought I was doing it. Um, yep. Same thing. I, I sold books in Walmart, right? So I would sit there and make eye contact with people, which is, I, I can't, uh, it's hard for me because I don't really smile or anything. So, but I did it. And then um, because I liked it and I believed in it. And then when starting Defy, uh, I, I was horrified of the thought of selling. I just wanted to be the product person and, uh, and the internal stuff I wanted to do, but I was horrified of the, of the idea of selling when I was told that I had to go to a trade show. I've never been more scared in my life. And, and I always say this, but I look back on the almost eight years and it, it was my favorite part. Selling was my favorite part. And I, I quickly, everybody said, you'll never be able to give up. I, I can delegate fairly easily when it's time to give something up. But everyone told me you'll never be able to give up product because you're a product person. No, I gave up product quite easily. And then they said, well, you're, you're never going to be able to give up finance. No, I can give that up. Well, you're never going to be able to give up this. No, I can give that up. But when it came to sales, it was much harder for me to give that up. And so, um, 
so yeah, so it was an interesting kind of revelation to me about myself that I like it. I, however, do not like selling things that I don't necessarily believe in or that I feel like I have to push. So I worked, I was a teller at a bank. At one point they made us start, you know, you have to have four conversions to go over and talk to a banker every month. Not into that. Um, if it was, hey, here's a great product and here's a reason to pitch it and so forth and just get however many you can, I would have been fine with it. But um, but to measure me based on getting four, I wasn't a big fan of that for sure. And um, and wouldn't want to wouldn't want to be part of selling or, or pushing something. And then I do real estate on the side and I love, I've always loved that and it's selling, but again, it's to me, it's helping people and my family isn't depending on the money to eat. And I was telling John this the other day when we were showing houses to a family member that the family member decided to build. So when you have a buyer who decides to build and goes to the builder without you as the agent, you get nothing. Um, so you could have spent six weeks showing them houses and let's say they were going to buy just pick a, ra a random number, $500,000 house, you get 3% commission, $15,000. And then one day, if they decide to go talk to a builder and don't write you down as their agent, all that time is gone. You don't get it. Yep. And if I were dependent on that money, you could see yourself really pushing for something that necessarily wasn't good for the, you know, for the person that you were working with. Uh, but because I'm not, and because I just want the best thing for the person, the money never has been has been an issue. And I didn't even feel like it was at Defy because I felt like I was selling a product that I believed in, I loved. Um, and so while I certainly needed to sell in order to support the company, I I didn't feel that same type of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, I, I think all three of us in terms of selling ideas and things that we're convicted to, I think there's some I want to come back to your Girl Scout cookie thing because I think it's interesting. Um, there are some things we haven't, like some people, some personality types won't assert themselves in groups or assert themselves with individuals or try to convince them of something. Um, my personality is try to convince people of things, right? So whether that's selling or not, um, that's very much a part of, of kind of how I am. And then Justin seemed a little more um, fearless about um about certain things here. Justin, I was interested, I, I'm interested in the fundraiser question with you. How, how did you approach fundraisers? Did you want to do the minimum, do the maximum? How did you just approach it when you got something shoved in your face and said sell it? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't really remember a whole lot about those times. I do I do remember, I guess, getting them and, and having done them. But what I, what I used to do is just give them to my mom and tell her to take them to work and oh, let her, let her kind of sell for me. It was, do it was, I don't, I don't like it either. But when I think back, that's literally the only thing I remember vividly is I would get the packet. I would say, here's what I need to sell. And I would give it to her and she would take it to work and then do it for me. Uh, because oh. as a kid, I wasn't thinking about that stuff. Then I wasn't thinking of it as sales. Like, you know, I didn't even know what sales was at that, at that right. moment. I don't think I knew what money was and the money wasn't going in my pocket. So for me, it was like, eh, it wasn't right. really for me. So the quickest way that I can get whatever I need to achieve and then kind of <laughs> check the box is all I was trying to do. Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at. And those things are um, so many sales approaches are modeled that way. Sell 10, you get this. Sell 50, you get that. Sell 100, you get that. Sell 1,000, you get that. And it can either be the thing that you get or the championship or the leader of the troop yeah. or just the joy of making sure the whole world has freaking gift wrapping paper for Christmas that they don't, I don't right. know, or a plant, so or a cookie or whatever. And so, um, uh, it's interesting. Stephanie said, you know, something is put in front of her to sell a challenge. She's going to sell it. She's going to do good. She's not making sure it's the best wrapping paper on the market or the best plant that money can buy or the best cookie in the world. It's just it's there. And so, I think my approach would have been was extremely similar to Justin's, but probably more conscious than Justin's. And you know, why do I, my mind was just, what's the minimum I can do? I don't want to bug people. I certainly don't want to go to door to door. What's the minimum I can do to not embarrass myself in this? <laughs> and, um, and just to kind of get through it and just get back to playing soccer. And that's what I want to do. I just want to get back to playing soccer or get back to doing whatever. So, um, and I think just in nature with just kids, you see some kids who want to sell 10,000 boxes of cookies and some people 
who are mortified by it. Um, uh, so, yeah, a little bit of nature versus nurture. Stephanie and you, you're, you're kind of different. I want to drill in for a second because, A, like you said, you're kind of half saying that sales is so unnatural to me um, because I'm not what you would, I'm not the outgoing person that my uncle was, right? Or that these people are, these, this just outgoing socialite salesperson. But then you're also saying, well, it's very natural to me. It was in my DNA about as early as I can remember. So even though I don't have these stereotypical characteristics, I learned that I'm a salesperson. So I've got a little bit of a weird question for you, but in terms of kind of things that you had to um, unlock or get through, maybe we talk about both, the things you had to kind of unlock or get through to, to realize your capabilities in this, because it really was super impactful to defy. That was where your ability to sell mattered in the world, I think. And um, so what did you have to get through? And then, and then once you got through that, you said it was the most enjoyable stretch of your career. What were kind of the rewards you reaped, forgetting about just closing sales, just what were the happiness benefits that you kind of reaped when you broke through your whatever you yeah. had to break through, if anything? Yeah, I think, I think the what I had to get through was just owning the fact that I could be myself and still do sales, that I don't have to be my uncle and I don't have to be my mom. I can just be myself and still enjoy it. Right. And that, that different people buy from different people for, for various reasons. So somebody might buy from you because you're charismatic. I'm not particularly not, I'm not, I'm not charismatic. Um, some people will buy from you because they trust you. Some people will buy from you because you're enthusiastic about the actual product and so forth. So I think when I stopped trying, or I think just in owning and acknowledging who I was and using that in the sales process made it less stressful for me. And, um, but I do think it's a combination of, I, I think my mom was very helpful in pushing and forcing those things. So I do think it was a combination of nature versus nurture. Um, but yeah, I, I think just, just, I, I mean, I really, when I see somebody, I think I'm smiling at them and everybody who's like, you're not smiling. You, you don't look happy <laughs> at all. And, and I'm like, no, I'm smiling. And they're like, no, you're really not. And, and so I was never going to be the person in the booth that was, um, yeah, just charismatic and smiling and, and so forth. So I just had to establish my own, just be me and me is transparent. Some people don't, don't like that. And it's too much for some people. And my me is very challenging. And my me is trying to figure out what the person's problem is and solving it. And that didn't always mean, so for instance, at Defy, it didn't always mean going with Defy. There's one part that sticks out and that I remember very clearly, a, a guy came to us with his company and told me where he was at and told me what he needed. And he was with one of our competitors. And uh, we just, we legitimately weren't a right fit for him. And, um, and so I introduced him to another company that was the right fit for him. And he was very appreciative of that. Now that didn't happen very much because we were the right fit the majority of time. But, um, but I, you know, I chose to try to figure out people's, people's problems and then help them solve it. Um, and then what was the second question about why well, it was the, enjoyed? The joy. So what's the, the joy of sales for you? Oh man, I don't know. Cause there are, there's, there's a lot. It's hard. I really respect people who, who make it their careers. I really, really respect people who make it their careers. And in fact, when I was at TCU a couple of weeks ago, one of the students said, Hey, when I get out of school, I was thinking about getting a sales job because I feel like that's, if you can, if you're good at that, that's a skill that will literally translate anywhere. And that's true. Right. And I think I it's my, true, but I think it's yeah. true if it's done right. Like, yeah, I think, I think absolutely. it's a, more in the authentic side, like a good human being approach yeah. is right. But the slimy side of it, and I think it's easy yeah. to get into that. That's what you don't want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think we need to get into good salespeople and bad salespeople here in a second kind of our experiences with that but um yeah, yeah because yeah. i think yeah, the way no, you absolutely. approach it is how there's, i would do it there. like very authentic very you know if the right. transaction there's, doesn't make sense bad. don't don't sell it but it, I, I want i still i still want to hear kind of the rest of your answer on, yeah. on just the joy of sales um, so overall and i'll say that because there are a lot of hard parts so to me what i realized in sales and i'll get to the joy part was um there was 
such a high uh, once you got to, to the final close. And then it literally lasts for three seconds and it's gone. And then you have to do it again. So so this isn't the joy part. This is the exhausting part. It's like you work, 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 work. It's this buildup. And, and then you're like, okay, it's done. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go do this again. So very different to me than product and tech and so forth. Because if you're doing a sprint and you're building it out and then you go to another sprint, you still, yeah, I guess you still have the positive impact of what you've built and it's in the product. And then you're like adding on to it. But with sales, it's like, you close it, it's wiped out, you start again, you close it, it's wiped out, it start again. So that was the not joy part of it. But um, that I had to learn to deal with kind of the emotional part of that. I guess the joy part of it was, was seeing people get a product that, um, that they loved and that helped them that that was the joy part of it. So knowing that I had something and not just at defy, but other other things well, knowing I had something that could help them getting that closed, seeing them be able to get that product that would help them. Um, yeah, was the best part of it. If I wasn't out there selling and telling about this product, then they would go choose something else and they would have a terrible experience. And so I think just probably like everything in life, the joy is in helping each other and the joy is in making life better for people. And that doesn't mean that there weren't lots of bad, you know, there weren't bad times or working through issues or, you know, various things, but yeah, just knowing you've provided them the best product for the money was, was the thing that felt good. I think. Yeah. I, I figured you'd answer that way. And, just, um, which, which, which I think is great. And that's why I love you or one of the reasons I love you. Um, because yeah, I don't think all salespeople would necessarily answer that way. Sometimes just winning. I just, it's a competitive scenario. I like winning. I like winning it or I like, or I like the bonus or I like the check or I like the target or I like the competition or I, you know, whatever. There's a million ways to answer that question. Right. Uh, Which I think is then, fine. I, I think I'm more, yeah, I think totally that, that part all, is exciting. Fine. The competitive yeah. aspect of sales, I think is the only really real appealing thing. It's just not doing it at the expense of others. Like, you know, doing yeah. the right thing is always doing the right thing. Right. So I, I want to be competitive and I want to win and, rip everybody, rip the competition's face off, I guess. But <laughs> at the end of the day, every, you know, I'm still a human being and everybody else is too. So uh, almost like kind of being a good sport about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally valid to want to get out in the world and compete and win and, um, and you know, all that stuff. There's, so, so I don't know that, well, there are probably some wrong answers to the question, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think there's, there's all kinds of good approaches, but, and Justin, so I'll build on what she said. So, so everything that she said is why I love consulting. So I love helping people solve problems. I love making things better. And that, that's kind of the fabric of my, my whole career. All, all my jobs have been around process improvement and stuff like that. Now the, um, and, and contrary to kind of what Stephanie mentioned, no, when I know stuff, I tell everybody, I've told a billion people about one note in word, something that everybody listening probably owns and, 5% of them is, have used, change your life if you use it the right way. I tell everybody about OneNote, Dashlane, all these things. Um, so I'll quote unquote sell the stuff, sell the crap out of stuff. But but for me, a so, so I, I started what I was saying, just having this kind of thought on sales and sellers but but i i too have tons of respect for um for people that are that are good at selling stuff and um um and that do this so i absolutely have respect for it um because it's such it's such a hard job because it resets so often and i think it just takes a lot of a lot of energy and i'll i'll let you finish but i want to come back to the sales process and a generic process versus, you know, metrics and data and, and so forth and, and what I've seen there, but I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, yeah. And so, and then I, I'm very product centric. So, so I became an SAP consultant. SAP is the, you know, um, enterprise planning accounting system. Um, I was the consultant on that for, for a number of years in my career. That was a product I could sell because I never did sell it, but I could have sold it because it was the best accounting system in the world and it's time. And I knew that. And, um, and so, so as I, as I grew to kind of 
have my favorite things, I could definitely feel like I could have very, very easily sold those things in the name of 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 kind of helping. I think what what you run into is and what I've run into are people that are just heavily biased towards the thing they're selling and they're just wrong. And the only business intelligence solution they can sell me is the one that they're selling, even though it's like the seventh best thing out there. They don't know. They don't care, whatever. It's just they just have to sell me that. Or I have a guy with a um, brokerage firm um, who works with us. Guess what? The only thing he can sell me, he's trying to help me. He's doing trying to do everything that Stephanie, you talked about, except all he can really talk about is his product. So he's only covering about. 2% 2% of what's out there. So you just run into these biases that you gave your story about. Yeah, in one case I sold, um, uh, I advised someone not to use Defy. It was probably a pretty radical, uh, not radical that you would do that, but it was probably a super ill-fitting situation to do it. And more often than not, I think salespeople try to squit the fit the square peg into the round, into the round hole. Um, so you got to watch for that. So, um, Justin, I don't know if you want to build on any of that, but. No, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that I, we came, the interesting thing for me is when starting a company and we're going to face this with clean layer as well. Um, you have to figure out how to do sales and marketing and some companies raise lots of money and they build the typical sales machine, right? Which may, and and I know all sales are not like this, but a typical model would be having some inbound uh, callers, some BDRs or something calling, trying to get people to do demos, having some more senior sales executives taking it from there, doing demos, you know, closing deals and so forth. And again, I know there's different levels and product sales, enterprise sales, and so forth. But pretty typical model of how many people do I market to every week, every month? How many people do I call? How many people respond to that call? How many people do a demo? How many people take it to the next level after demo? So forth and so on. And and then also the typical model is that you're part commission, right? And you're so you're part base and part commission. And really early on in Defy, my uncle told me that I needed to find a salesperson and that I needed to have, give them a low base and give them commission and so forth. For the first five years, I took a completely different approach. And anybody who worked with me on sales was salary. And we just said, we're all part of the same team. This is your job. You're going to be evaluated based on your job. Um, but, but we're all going to be salary. And there were lots of positive things that came out of that because everybody felt like a team. Sometimes in a sale, in an organization, sales can get paid a lot more if they do well, which makes sense because they're driving the business uh, and sometimes a lot less if, you know, they're not doing well. So, so it made a lot of sense. It made us feel like a team and so forth. Uh, But what we did find, and I think this would be typical to find is that works really, really well when you're getting sales. When sales start to slow down, you have no way to predict them. Or when you get a salesperson who isn't very good at predicting the sales and they say they're going to you know, close three deals next month and then they only close one and you have no data, no information to go back and see. Uh, or if you're very short staffed, your salespeople could spend all their time, uh, if you only have one, for instance, demoing and talking to new potentials. And then what happens is they haven't spent any time prospecting, getting new people engaged. So you'll have a spike in sales and then it'll drop while you're prospecting again. And then it'll go back up while you're working with them and down and so forth. And so in running a business, it's nice to have predictability and so forth. And, you know, and typically there's all kinds of articles out there and all kinds of, um, you know, firms experiences and kind of this, this model that drives um, consistency or drives the ability to predict, oh, okay, well, we're not closing enough sales. Let's go back and see where in the process it's, it's broken. Are we not calling out to enough people? Oh yeah, we're calling plenty of people, but when we get to the demo, we, they drop out. Okay, well, what could be better about our demo and so forth. And so that evolution, and I've talked about the book, uh, scaling up before, but that evolution is a very interesting, evolution to me where it's not just kind of all hands on deck, everybody talking and selling, but it's an actual process and trying to figure out and decide how big should that team be, I think is a, um, is a difficult 
thing and you know people with experience probably have a better idea but you know how how many calls can you make in a day how many how many deals can you close how big does your team need to be to get the new revenue that you need to um so I think, that i think those are important to have like to have those defined just like you said like having the process defined and at least having numbers that people um use as sort of a guidepost is is important i think a lot of people don't have that stuff and right. that maybe is when you get into more um more i don't know chaos uh, from a sales organization right. so i think the process is good and i know i know at defy we implemented a process there for a while i know i wasn't in sales but i know we had a process that seemed to be you know better than yeah. better than before of not having one um oh yeah yeah, and, yeah and no, the, definitely so and then the Wait. other interesting thing you mentioned was um the salary side of it so like just being a salaried employee and from a sales organization that's interesting i think a lot of um and i i'm i say a lot of i, I could be wrong on this but the dealerships have moved to where they have their sales people be on salary in a lot of ways and some of the bigger maybe captives I've seen because you the experience of buying a vehicle from them from a from a scenario that's where they're salaried is very different from when they're not, um, and they're yeah. less pushy. They're less you know they're less of the things that nobody likes about going to a dealership. Right. And I don't I don't know if that's a temporary thing, like you said, because they've kind of somehow been able to forecast the pipeline of sales that they're going to have and they can afford to do that, or if that's a permanent thing to drive culture changes in the customer experience. It'd be interesting to know. So I don't, I don't know if you know anybody in that space on that side that knows the answer to that, but I'm more curious on it. Cause I've totally been to places where I'm, my perception is that they're salaried employees. They're not pushy. They're not, you know, trying to get the, the sale necessarily. And it, and it also, in my mind, removes the negotiation point. Cause it's not like, you know, that's one of the fun things about buying a car as you go there and you get to negotiate the price. Well, they're really not negotiating anymore. Cause there's no reason to, they're going to get paid one way or another. So it'd be interesting to see that. Um, yeah. They get detail yeah, no, on that. Yeah, I think you're seeing more and more of those models. And I think I, I think it seems like most companies, though, especially tech companies, are trying to um put the exact same model into place. So right. so they'll they'll go in and say, This is the model. This is the model we've seen for the last 20 years. And I do think it, it's probably an interesting time to switch things. So for instance, when I started doing sales, I kept a spreadsheet. No, no, no real data and metrics. I, you know, but I kept my spreadsheet and the problem was I lost my spreadsheet. Right. So eventually we moved over to, to Salesforce and so forth. But if, if I had, if I had metrics, so if I had salaried sales team members, but I actually had metrics to hold them accountable, could we have gotten better results than having commission-based people, you know, with those same type of metrics, because, um, yeah, they they would just be I think, potentially I think he, more passionate. I, my intuition is that you would have gotten the same results uh, transactionally, meaning the number of sales that you would have gotten. I think they would have been the same, but what you might have seen is like other metrics change in terms of like um, customer satisfaction or any of the other metrics that might come as sort of a, a lagging indicator, like after the transaction, like the experience right. or, that they had during the process. Satisfaction true, or, true needing, team member. or needing yep. less team members yep. potentially. Yep. Too. But I think the dollars, like the number of clients that you would have sold or whatever, probably would have been similar. Right. Yeah. I'll give you an anecdotal story. And A, I think Stephanie, when I look outside in it, your company and your sales experience, I feel like, yeah, that was salary thing was all, all good, except you were so instrumental in closing almost every sale. I just can't think of material sales that happened without involvement and in like well, they control. they definitely did later on, not at the beginning, but later right, on. Right, right. So 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 yeah, you you being a part of that and intertwined in that is key. And then and then yeah, this this kind of sales machine. And so so one thing I, I've seen sales so I've worked in, in in a lot of industry and stuff like that. So I've seen a lot of revenue and a lot of sales initiatives and stuff like that. The most recent one um, at Active, I think, is interesting because um, Active sells registration systems, participant management systems for if you're holding a um, event organizers that are holding a 5K, they need a platform to do registrations, collect payment. That's Active. A YMCA that opens up, needs a platform to manage classes, manage registrations, take payment, that's active. 
Um, Walmart needs to sell hunting and fishing license. Okay, they need a platform to sell hunting and fishing licenses. That's active. So this is what active was. And active had kind of stagnant. And so, so they've got to sell to um, people uh, running small 5Ks. They've got to sell to churches. They've got to sell to Walmarts. They've got to sell to all these different things. And they've kind of come to this mature point in their company um, where revenues, you know, slowly growing. And so um, what they did, so they got owned by, got bought by a private equity company um, and the private equity company that bought them specializes in process. They're a process centric market dominant private equity company. So they did exactly what, what you guys were talking about in just putting in the sales machine, the hourly metrics, the monitors everywhere that show the metrics, the, um, uh, yeah, call rate, just all kinds of all kinds of stuff. So that was their their idea was we're going to create a sales machine and go into all these markets and and sell we're dominant. And so they they staffed up and um and built out to do all that um and absolutely failed miserably at it, like a, mm. a dismal dismal failure after um probably a year and a half or two years of that effort and. And I think what it what it showed, it showed a number of things, but but one of the key things it showed is just like any just like anything else, um, I think you can have a process with some products, you can have a process that's good enough to move the product. But A product matters and um and then B um quality of the salesperson, quality of the relationship, actually understanding and market need and being able to speak to the need in a way that resonates with the customer. Um, if you don't have those fundamental things, um, then you can wrap a whole lot of process and a whole lot of people around it. And you're just going to waste a bunch of time, which is exactly what Active did. And they did it under the leadership of really smart private equity, really smart CEO, lots of money. Still a complete failure and a waste of you know tens of millions of dollars, but um, uh, so so there there are I think some fundamental things that go with with successful sales because I think te CEOs people tend to think oh all we got to do is sell it then we'll get the valuation oh, literally the only thing standing between me and the revenue of my dreams is sales right shoot then start selling it that's perfect let's just sell it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so, much, it's so much harder than that, right? It, it is, but I but I also just think it's about time for companies to branch out and try different models. Not no metrics, but just try different models instead of I'm going to hire two BDRs and this many juniors and this many seniors. I just think it's time to try something else. Just like Justin said in auto, they're trying something else. I think in technology sales, it's just good timing to try something else and adjust. And so maybe the private equity companies that you're talking about, maybe they do that. Maybe they have their playbook, but on 20% of them, they try new things out to see if it works so that they can put it into the 80%. I don't know. But if they don't, they should, because yeah. I think, the, and there, there are just nuances about different companies, different markets and so forth that following a pattern is great, but it's not always the best thing. Well, um, yeah. And what, what I would say is is it's an and. And I think people looked at it as, um, no, if I have the right machine, the machine can do this. And what I'm saying is it's an and. No, you, you really need to have a great product. You really need to know your customer. And now you need to wrap a sales machine around that. So I'm a big believer in process and, um, and creating a machine that can, um, you know, for us, we'll talk about this in Clean Layer. We've ultimately got to sell this product to people you've never met. So, so your your thing you leaned on on sales was relationship and um, and getting to know a customer and putting something in there that'll solve a problem. Now we have a product that conceptually solves problems, but if the thing works, we're not going to meet ninety nine percent of our end users. Mathematically, we can't meet ninety nine percent of our end users. I guess if we have some awesome conference that people go to, we can meet maybe twenty percent of them, but. But anyway, so now we've got to shift the model to I'm going to know the customer and their needs in a more conceptual way and sell to them without ever meeting them, which is a completely different. Yeah, thing. totally different, which I, I'm actually excited about that. I think it's just completely different. But from a learning, I think 
you just like with everything, it builds in your career. So I think everything we've done and learned builds to this and uh, it's going to be different and we're going to have to figure that out and we're going to have to do marketing differently, right? Our marketing, you know, with the previous company was a lot trade shows and so forth. That's not going to be the case here. Um, it's not as much of an enterprise type sale, at least at the start. So, um, so that's interesting Two two, two things I wanted to point out before we wrap up this one, uh, my favorite saying, and everybody's heard the saying, but, um, is hope is not a strategy. Right. And I think that really is, uh, you see it in sales. And so I definitely saw it kind of in our, the middle of our life cycle where, and I saw it and I see it with different salespeople that I've worked with. It's like, Oh yeah, things are going great. Things are going great. They're definitely going to sign. They love our product. Da, da, da. And then I'll just kind of do a, uh, call into that potential customer to hear it for myself. And when I meet with that customer or talk to that customer, in fact, they have no, um, no desire to sign within the next two years, for instance. <laughs> and the salesperson is like, oh, no, they really like the product. So I'm hoping that we'll change their mind. And instead of two years, they'll sign in a month or something like that. And I, I do come across that, that a lot. This just kind of hope being hope being the strategy versus the reality of the process, the data, what the customer says, and so forth. And, you know, everything that you have to do to make that jump from kind of wishing and hoping and so forth. And, um, and then you, you see it in very mature organizations too, where, um, you know, you'll be sure you're going to get a sale, but you're not pushing, you're not asking the right questions, you're not using the data of the fact that they haven't called you in three weeks and and so forth. So I've not seen a good way to build that into the process, the intangibles of understanding what the salesperson says versus versus the reality of the situation. So that was one thing. And then um, my, one of my absolute favorite stories, Justin knows this one, and I think, John, you'll remember it. But we, as we were kind of just ramping up very quickly and we were selling, you know, there's always a point where you're selling fast, you know, almost faster than you can execute and it stresses the team out. And so we had a, a team member who told me one time that he wanted me to stop selling altogether for, I don't even remember what it was, three months, six months, whatever, so we could get the product perfect. <laughs> and, um, and so I just laughed because cl clearly good intentions, very, very good intentions of having this beautiful product with very little issues and that would help on the expense side going forward and so forth. Except A, there is no perfect product. And there, even if you gave yourself another three months, which I think a lot of companies make the mistakes of delaying sales, you know, to, to try to get to perfection. Even if you waited another three months, you're still not going to have a perfect product. And in the meantime, you've lost momentum, you've lost revenue and so forth. So I, I said it on the one call, but we started selling when we basically had a login page and we're fortunate enough to have lenders come alongside of us, believing in the vision and, and helping us and so forth. And so it's going to be very interesting to me with clean layer, because as you guys know, I'm chomping at the bit to get to the sales part of it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we're constantly looking at how much time do we have left? When are we going to, when's MVP going to be done and so forth. So it's going to be interesting on when we decide to actually start selling, especially because it's a very different type of sell sale. Yep. Um, when we start selling versus when we keep trying to adjust it and perfect it. Um, because the bottom line is no revenue can't sustain very long. So just got to keep yeah, raising more yeah. money. No, that's not happening. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's definitely a, a good, a good other podcast topic when to kind of go because there, there's a whole lot in what you said there for sure so that'd be a good one and then i don't know if you guys think this is a um a separate podcast i, I would like to go around and hear just each other's views on um either bad sales experiences or what not to do or, or kind of the, the pitfalls of sales but that that could almost be an entire different podcast i don't know the way you guys want to take it we're 40 minutes in on this one if you want to go that or, or call this one good for what it is and um and maybe pick pick up with that some other I have time a, so i have a uh 
Um, I don't, I don't have a, like probably a good one, but I have one that's been impacting me for the last like two weeks. That's really driving me crazy. It, it's literally bringing me to the point where I'm thinking about changing my phone number and I've had the same phone number as long as I can remember. And just the pain of changing our phone number would just, it just drives me crazy. Um, but somebody, and I don't know who used my phone number somehow to try to solicit health insurance, something. It wasn't me. And now I get all these calls from telemarketers. I can, I'll show you guys my phone log, but literally 30 plus calls probably over like a 24 hour period where they were, they were thinking it's me. And I forget the guy's name, whoever, Alex or something like that. But I keep getting these calls and in my mind, and I've responded to some of them. Some of them were text messages and I even called the numbers back and like, guys, I'm not the person that used this. And, and, and it's not a direct, I guess, sales you know, experience, but it's a, it's a customer service experience. And I'm like, you guys are trying to be a, a company that's, you know, you know, giving great service. And I realized that somebody tried to sign up for this, but it wasn't me. So can you guys just stop calling me? And I, I mean, I get calls, they do this thing where they spoof the phone number. And so it makes it seem like it's a number that I might know somebody from, but I don't, I just have a rule. I don't answer unknown numbers anyway. Um, and so this experience for me has just been pretty bad. Yeah, so, that I don't sounds know. terrible. It's not it's not a direct sales thing, but it's more of just a customer service side of it, which again I think is important to sales generally. But, um, but yeah, I'm not even a customer, and I'm getting called. Right. I don't. I don't know if I can think of a bad sales experience on the fly. I know I'll think of it as soon as we get off this podcast. Um. So I don't think it's a whole. I don't. I definitely don't think it's a whole another podcast. I think it's like a quick. You know. I guess in general, the worst. I mean, you know, I, um, even though I love the auto industry, I hate the car buying experience. Um, I'll, I'll use that. I'll use that recent example because I think this is pretty funny. So, so John wanted a new car. So I was going around to a bunch of different dealerships, getting quotes and just emailing them. And so you'd send a note on their, um, to their email and a, the majority of places had more than one person contact me. That's just stupid. (laughs) <laughs> like right when you put and, it in, right? You get yeah, flooded right. with calls. Right. Yeah. yeah it's and so, awful. so I wouldn't put my telephone number because I want to call. So I would have salesperson number one from the dealership write me, salesperson number two from the same dealership write me. Yep. And I'm like, can you guys not see that somebody already wrote me? Like you need a process to see because why do I want now they wasted my time responding to multiple people. So this is way better than the experience used to be for buying a car. But so that was a that was a bad experience. And then the, um, and then just kind of throughout that sales experience, some dealerships did it better than others, but they either a wouldn't remember what I said, or B they'd be so focused on getting me on the phone, even though in my initial message, I said, I'm not going to get on the phone with you. And they, you know, try to push and they wouldn't back off, um, or C they would tell me a price and then, you know, say, no, we can't honor that or whatever. And so I, (laughs) this is probably stupid, but I actually took time for each dealership that we didn't buy at. And even the one we did, I think I took time and wrote out the, my entire experience with them. I wrote out my entire experience and, and wrote what was good and what was bad about it to try and help them understand from the customer's perspective, what about their internet buying experience works and what doesn't work. Right. And so, so I sent this around, just said, Hey, love the industry. Just wanted to tell you what my experience was. So there might be places for you to hone in on your process and also wanted to compliment you on the ones that worked well. So the one salesperson who was, and he was the manager of the internet sales, and then also had been a manager of the place that we ended up, we did buy from in the past. So sent this to him and I believe he thought he was forwarding the email to somebody else or somebody inside his company or something, but he basically responded back and laughed at me for sending it. So instead of being like, <laughs> instead of being like, thanks for the feedback and then take it or don't take it, he made fun of me. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so I would say that, that, and I of course haven't bought a car in uh, 15 years. Um, so that experience has gotten a lot better, certainly gotten a lot better, but still just, um, just lacks some just basic user experience. I had one, I had a good one, actually. I didn't actually, I didn't buy, I was looking for an F-250, like I think a year, sometime around Christmas, a couple years ago. 
And I wasn't seriously looking, but I thought, well, my uncle had just bought one and I, his is, I really, really liked his. And so I was thinking about buying one. And so I emailed, I was looking around shopping online similar and I emailed this place. I think it was, I don't mind saying it if anybody listens, I think it was a five-star board um, somewhere. That's where we bought from. And, and I have to say like the guy was awesome. I'll even say his name. His name was Ryan Richardson. He, he like emailed, well, I pulled up my email real quick so I could find it. Um, but Mm -hmm. he, we emailed back and forth. I never talked to this guy once on the phone. I never went to the store, nothing. And he would just email me back and forth and was very hospitable. Cause I was like, my uncle bought a truck and here's what he paid. And he lives in Lubbock and da, 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 da. And so he was very patient and was like researching stuff and really trying to get me the same deal as my uncle. Well, ultimately my uncle miscommunicated some stuff to me. And so the price that he actually got wasn't what he told me wasn't accurate. And so we finally came to that conclusion through this, through several emails. And I felt bad. I'm like, man, I'm sorry. I wasted your time. Cause I, you know, I wasn't going to pay the price that they wanted. I was really trying to get a much, a substantial discount. And, uh, and, but he was just so polite and it was just, it was a really good experience. Cause I got to do it on my own time. I didn't have to like, you know, be on the phone. It just was a, you know, email back and forth. And I, I just, I enjoyed it. I was yeah, going to ask good. that about, it, I was going to ask really- about y'all's experience too, like where you buy it and like how it was for the new car. Yeah, it really depends on who you get on the other side, right? So now almost all dealerships offer that option, which is so much better than it used to be. But yeah, it depends on it depends on who you get, because that one snarky guy was snarky to me through the whole process and then snarky to me when I tried to help. Um, And then on the other side, yeah, there was another um, place where the lady was incredibly helpful and kind the entire time and wanted to help me and wanted me to be a customer and didn't wasn't you know, overly pushy about you got to call, you got to come in, all that kind of stuff. Um, the deal, but that particular dealership emailed me from multiple people. So that was annoying, but she herself was good. And so, uh, yeah, it really depends who you get. It, it's a, the dealerships process and then B who you get, um, that matters. So yeah, oh, John, do you want to close us with your example? Yeah, I'll go down a different track and it just shows, um, yeah, yeah. Real just, quick, real quick, just so I get it accurate. It was Park City's Ford in Dallas. Uh, so it wasn't Five Star Ford, nothing against Five Star Ford, but it was Park City's Ford. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, wait. Okay, hold, oh, yeah. Go ahead. So. Yeah. So, so my, my role um, in some of the companies I worked at, um, a lot of them was, was senior roles in finance um, where I'm. I'm obviously in finance. What do I care about? I care about profitability of the company and the financial targets and the financial metrics. So, so that's where I'm wired. That's where I'm thinking. So, so I've seen a lot of destruction in sales over the course of my career. And so I'll just, I'll just start with some of my pet peeves of, of a salespeople that do dumb things financially and with terms. And, and what I've learned is that if you leave pricing with sales or you leave terms with sales, you will give away your company to your customers. They do not care whether your company makes money. They only care about their commissions. They don't have an understanding of what it takes for your customer to make money. It's really, and that, that in my experience is like permeated sales organizations mm-hmm. until, until you get to the leaders that hold the line and understand it and have kind of the guideposts. But left to the the unwashed masses of salespeople, they will absolutely give your company away, even at at extremely mature companies, because they love closing the sale and hate seeing business walk out the door, which is that needs to be their mindset. But yeah, the the dumb things financially is an example. At Active, we sold a million dollars of equipment into Mexico two years, no payments, no interest. So we literally sold something hardware into a market that we had no way to recover the hardware, no way to get the cash um, with two years, no interest. And, um, and that person that quarter got celebrated um, for figuring out a way to move this product. Forget that we're never going to get paid for it. Um, so ultimately, they did that. They expanded that. That person was employee of the quarter. It was a big thinking director in the company. That person was fired nine months later when the house of cards came tumbling down and all his lies came tumbling down. And um, and then the c- company ended up losing $10 million off of what, what that person was doing. But that was sales run amok 
when revenue was all that a company cared about. Um, the other thing that I've seen in technology, and Justin, I'm sure can relate to this one, is if you cause your company to stretch a product or a service in ways that go beyond what it's built to do, and salespeople will do that all day long. You've got a product that is built for a purpose and great to extend the product, great to meet customer needs. All that stuff is great. We all understand growth. But when you bastardize or extend that product to a point that you know it's going to hurt your development team, hurt your test cycles, hurt all, cause all kinds of collateral damage. And, and it's, it's a tough thing, Steph. I'd be interested in how you work through this because, because I agree that IT can have this sky is falling mentality about this type of thing. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they are actually right. And you look at this core thing that was super beautiful, super profitable, and you've just Frankensteined it. Your company didn't turn out to be profitable on the other side of the Frankensteining. And now you're wondering why your development team can't finish anything in less than 10,000 hours. And how did we get into this spot? Oh, yeah. because maybe they were right. Maybe we shouldn't have added that technical debt for this sale that we thought was so important when that customer actually squeezes shit out of us on price, they squeeze us on functionality, we made no money off of it, and we screwed up our IT organization. So I, I've seen that um, a lot of times. And if salespeople ruled the world, there would be a lot more of that than less of that. So that those yeah. are two kind of organization-destroying factors that really organizations need to be balanced out to, to protect you. Well, that's what I was going to say. If the organization's balanced out, I mean, you're not going to find a hundred percent of your salespeople to also know and understand product and all those types of things. You're finding the majority of your salespeople who want, who are trying to close deals. And so that's why typically you'll have balance. You'll have a sales engineers who do know the product really well, and they can answer those questions. So the salesperson doesn't have to, because everybody cannot be everything. And so it's important to put those people in place. It's important to have typically a process that if anything is a stretch or outside, the leadership team reviews it and decides whether it makes sense or not. Now that that doesn't help you if the CEO wants to do it, even if it's a terrible idea, but I certainly wouldn't say that's the salesperson's problem. To me, it's the company's problem if they don't have the right structure in place to review deals like that and make a decision at, um, at a higher level than the salesperson's level. Because Again, typically, if the salesperson is going to agree to price cuts, they have to get approval. If they're going to agree to certain functionality, they have to get approval. So to me, it's not the salesperson's well, fault. Where, where it is the salesperson's problem is when you start relaxing your processes and, damn it, I, I thought I was supposed to see everything on pricing. How did I not see this? Well, yeah, or, but that's or, not or the salesperson. That's not the salesperson's bit, fault. It's the leadership team. Sneakier. So, so what salespeople know is – they know all the controls, all of them, and they know exactly where they can go within those controls and the lines that they can walk. It's like they're walking through like the little laser field trying to get to their destination. So, so <laughs> it's not everything that they're conflicted over. They ask the most um, well-intentioned person in the organization. No, they are sneaky and trying to sneak around and trying to circumvent and trying so to- So all salespeople are not sneaky. Can. You can calm down a little. All salespeople are not <laughs> sneaky. I never <laughs> had this problem. And I would argue that finance is as responsible for this because for instance, we always had the CEO or head of finance review every contract before it was signed. So a salesperson couldn't get through a minefield or get away with everything because the, the CFO is signing off on everything. So again, I would argue that it's a leadership problem, not a sales problem. If the leadership sets objectives and goals and different things that drives the salespeople to do that, that's a leadership team problem. If the leadership team allows them to re get stuff signed without oh, approval, that's a leadership team problem. So I think I would, yeah, and and I would a hundred percent agree with that. These are organizational problems, but they're also problems in human nature when someone is so single-minded to getting a sale and only knows so much. Um, so, so I think that's what I I would. Which is why that potentially in this day and age we should adjust 
the way it's done to more of a team concept versus a commission you win or I win or or something else. And uh, so I'm a big fan of of that, of it being a team thing. And I believe lots of companies put things into place for it to be a team thing. So I believe some companies just say, oh, the day you close the deal, you get your commission, right? That's not a team effort because he gets his commission and it goes on to the implementation team and they're stuck with it. Others say, no, you're going to get part of your commission now. The other part's going to be based on them actually staying with us or actually implementing or whatever. Well, now their pay is also tied to it going well in implementation. So there, there, there are ways to incent and do things. But to me, it's a, it's a leadership team, CFO, CEO decision and, and problem to incent the right way. I think it yeah. runs the gamut. Like certainly, um, at, I think when in the early, I'm only, I'm using Defy because that's the most recent example, but in the early days, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, um, isolation in terms of, um, you know, selling ahead of delivery and then putting strain on the delivery side of things. Um, and I think that showed in individuals, you know, just the way they carried themselves, like their happiness levels were probably a little bit skewed and whatnot. But what I found is when you peel back the onion a little bit, and then you start to see that the problem is really more widespread. I actually really enjoyed once we put process in place and I was more involved in the sales process. And I love my favorite thing to do was be like, okay, here's what it's going to take to do it. And then let somebody else make that decision. That was my favorite part because I didn't have to be the one to do it. And I could easily communicate that to the rest of my team and saying, Hey, this is a client that I know is going to be a pain in the butt. You guys have told me, I've told them, here's how much it's going to take to do it. And I'm leaving the decision up in their hands and we'll support it. If that's what, if that's, what's right for the company, if, if revenue at this point is more important than, you know, a, a quality customer or whatever, because there's pain in like stretching yourself a little bit to try new things. So if you're going into a different market that maybe a product's not intended for, there's going to be a lot of work and a lot of strain regardless. So just making sure that everybody's on the same page, I think was more important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then it, if the team decided that was the smart way to go, then you march that direction. And of course yeah. there's going to be pain, but it was not a salesperson's decision. It was everybody's decision. Yeah. But it's the salesperson who's initially talking that comes and says, Hey guys, I know this isn't an exact fit, but I think it could be pretty cool. How far off are we from this? And then the management team looks and says, man, we've actually, those four of those six things have been on our list and we've been wanting to get to them anyhow. This is a way to get them done and get it funded and open up a whole nother market to us and so forth. Or, yeah, that's just not even on our strategic roadmap for the next, you know, two years. But good salespeople should be bringing and pushing the envelope and and asking, does this work? Does this work? Could this work? Yeah. Um, because they have to open up new markets too. So yeah, and one yeah. of, one yeah. of the things that um, I was actually looking forward to getting more involved um, when I was there still was um, working closer with sales and understanding processes and kind of being aligned. When I had moved over into more of the um, the platform side of things was just saying like, Hey, at the time, I think they called it deal desk. I don't know what it's called now, but you know, every deal would kind of effectively be reviewed. And then there was a process that we were working to put in place to say, Hey, out of this, there's three things, whatever number of things that need to, that I need to be aware of if they change. So for example, if SLAs around customer support are going to change because we're going to make a concession in any one of these areas, then I need to know about it sooner than later so that I can tell you whether or not we're staffed or ready to support those changes. And I think I was, I was excited about that part of it because that would have just given more insights into the, into the platform support side of things. Um, like what we had on the, on the product side. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good evolution. So, yep. All right. Well, that's our podcast on sales. That's it for this episode of the journey. journey. I'm going to get the journey. The, the, the journey. That's good. Okay.